welcome to this week's edition of Bowl Season Stories. I'm Nick Carparelli, the Executive Director of Bowl Season. And each week, different guests from the world of college football join me to talk about current topics in the sport, as well as discuss what they remember most about their bowl game experiences. Our guests include members of the media, former players, coaches, sports executives, and even fans who will share their favorite bowl season stories with you. Today, we are joined by CBS Sports senior writer Dennis Dodd, University of Oklahoma football legend Tony Casillas, and Fiesta Bowl and Guaranteed Rate Bowl Executive Director Mike Neely. Also joining me as she does each week is our on-air producer, Angela Lang. Good morning, Angela, and welcome to the first day of fall. Oh my gosh, it's starting to feel like it here. You know, Nick, I'm in the Dallas area, so it's it's finally cool in the mornings. Loving that. Hopefully, hopefully you're having a nice weather up where you are. And when it starts to feel like fall, don't you feel like that's when it really starts to feel like football season is setting in? Absolutely. Technically it started three weeks ago. I I, I think college football for a lot of us is synonymous with the fall, but uh, it's probably appropriate that the first day of fall is actually today. Cause as we enter week four of the season, this is when the storylines really start kicking in. Absolutely. And to talk about those storylines, as you mentioned, uh, Dennis Dodd joins us and it's so exciting to welcome him, not just because he is a fixture of college football since 1988, but he's also my fellow Mizzou alum. Dennis, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, M-I-Z. And yeah, we could just do the next two hours on the Tigers if you want, Angela. That's right. Z-O-U. I got to finish that for you, That's Nick. That's right. Because uh, Nick is not, he doesn't know about the Tiger thing. He's a Syracuse guy. But uh, he's going to jump in with uh, some of the storylines of, of, of the start of the college season going into week four. Dennis, how popular is college football nowadays? We're only three weeks in. And I think I read yesterday, there's already been five games televised that have had over seven and a half million viewers last year it took all the way to the last week of the season to have that many games just an amazing start to the season and I thought that was one of the storylines of last season Nick that you know obviously empty stadiums or partially filled stadiums but there was a lack of a I don't know what the word is there there wasn't as much interest in the game and was that a factor of COVID you know you saw the ratings down almost across the board even in the in the CFP. And I can't explain it. I were people just doing something else with their time. Were they occupied by, by COVID? Did it not matter as much? But like you said, across the board, the ratings are up. I think the latest was uh, Alabama, Florida. You know, they hadn't, Alabama hadn't played in the swamp in 10 years and then a fantastic game. And a lot of TV types will say, okay, the benchmarks are halftime. Is it interesting? And then going into the fourth quarter, because that's how they do these metrics. You know, that's how they do these metrics for advertisers. And it, you know, the ratings were fantastic. I think that was one of those that was was over that mark. Well, I think that answers a big question. People were curious how will how will live sports in general rebound after COVID? Uh, how will live attendance rebound? I think some of the images we've seen on TV. I, I think the answer is pretty clear. It's re, it's rebounded pretty well. Absolutely. I, I first week I was at Charlotte, seventy four thousand Georgia Clemson. The atmosphere was like a playoff game, uh, and the the way the game was played was almost like a playoff game. No offensive touchdowns, 10 to three, you know, every snap meant something. And then week two at Ohio state, a hundred thousand fans, their first home game with fans. And I don't know, 600 something days. And they, they were full throat. Now the game didn't go their way, but it was just, it did my heart good just to be there and just to feel that again, because I, I went to one game last year, uh, True Confessions. I went to a Missouri 
Alabama game in week one because I could drive to it. And then that was it. I, I didn't even go to the playoff. Um, so it's just, it was, that'll be in the book someday. That was, that was the deep depression I was in last year. <laughs> well, uh, we, it was week three last week and threes were wild. Dennis. 33 teams now have three wins. And for us here at bowl season, that means they're halfway to punching their ticket to bowl eligibility, which we know for every school is kind of the first goal, right? The first check mark, get to the sixth win, get to a bowl game. And then you, you build on that. Interesting to note for me, six teams in the big 10 are already three, and zero. six in the sec five in the big 12, but only one in the PAC 12, you know, in the first week or two, the PAC 12 seemed to have a lot more promise than they may have had in recent past. And I, I think that changed last week. Yeah. As much, as much excitement there was around the PAC 12 with UCLA and Oregon, we, we had that hiccup, which we always do. It seems like in recent years where Fresno walks into the Rose bowl and pretty much hands it to, to UCLA, UCLA made a big comeback, grabbed the lead late only to see Fresno and Jake Hayner uh, you know, pull their hearts out of their chest going 75 yards and 40 seconds, I think, to win the game. And not not to say that, that UCLA is out of it, but you would expect them the way they're playing to win a game like that, especially playing as physical as they are. So, you know, you're going to have to come back from that. Uh, and Oregon, so you got Oregon sitting there at number three with, you know, the lone playoff hope right now. And I, I saw them at Ohio State, as I mentioned. I think they've got the chops to win the rest of their games. They're you know, their schedule kind of works out that way, but with any PAC 12 team projecting that now is, is a big risk, but Mario Cristobal has done a great job there. So great to have you here, Dennis, to give your take on the season so far and talk to us about what's going on in college football today. And we are so thankful to have you stick around to help uh, talk with our next guest as he shares his bowl season stories from uh, the 1980s before he was a back-to-back -back Super Bowl champion with the Dallas Cowboys. Our next guest helped make his name as an All-American lineman at the University of Oklahoma, where he helped the Sooners win a national championship in 1985. Please welcome Tony Casillas to the podcast. Tony, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Tony, Nick Carparelli here. I'm the Executive Director of Bowl Season. Thanks so much for joining us uh, on the show. Um, you know, you, you've had a great NFL career, uh, won two Super Bowls with the Cowboys, but you can't get very far talking about Tony Casillas without mentioning the University of Oklahoma and those great teams in the mid-80s under Barry Switzer. I know you bleed crimson and cream. <laughs> what does it mean to you to be an Oklahoma Sooner? Well, it's, uh, it, it's interesting because last week they had the Nebraska-Oklahoma game that they rekindled that home and away uh, matchup. And so this kind of, as you mentioned, this kind of brought me down memory roll when it comes to what it means to play for Oklahoma because I remember those games in December – or, or October, it always meant something. It meant that we were playing for the Big A championship. But ultimately, as you mentioned, in the bowl season, uh, playing in New Orange Bowl for either the – usually the national championship. So it, it represents so much because although when you get older, you get a little grayer and you move on, you still have those great uh, – that great resume and that great history of those games you played in. And obviously, YouTube kind of reminds you – you know, the video is kind of grainy, but man, I tell you what, there were some great moments in Oklahoma football. Yeah, Tony, I, I actually went in, this is Dennis Dodd here from CBS Sports. I actually sat down and watched the game in Century again last week. I sat down for three hours and watched the whole thing just to gather it in. You were, I guess, with all those legends last week and, and Joe Castiglione, 
the AD had made such a big effort to do this. This was really his baby to play this game against Nebraska. What was that like, I guess, the Friday night before and just living through that game again? Well, Dennis, uh, uh, unfortunately, I wasn't there. I was at uh, Parents Weekend at the University of Arkansas. Oh. My daughter's a junior. <laughs> but uh, regardless, I can just only imagine. I think it was this great uh, tribute to the Selman brothers. I know they made a statue of them long overdue in my book because they represented so much. I mean, who could ever imagine three brothers playing on the defensive line and how great they were? Um, but it's always good to bit that type of history uh, be back together again because that represents the family of schools like Oklahoma and the legacy. And uh, I think a lot of that has to do with Barry Switzer. Barry Switzer, we're all family. I mean, we all have a you know a group text message. It's a, a big family. Uh, but uh, that's what it represents to be able to go back. Those guys reliving those moments. And uh, the Nebraska Oklahoma, as I mentioned earlier, just uh, it meant something. And you go back and watch those games and. Football was a little different back then, but it was still – there was a lot of symbolic meaning behind it. And I think that that's what those players and the legacy of all the players have gone through, Norman, how important it is. All right. So, I apologize. Yeah, I apologize. Um, uh, so let's go back to 85. I think that was my first Orange Bowl. I covered you guys. <laughs> I, I, I don't know if I was at the Miami game, but that changed every everything that year. Could you have ever thought – well, let's say this. What, what was the standing of Jamel Holloway at that time? You know, you had, you had Troy, you know, things were going to change a little bit, maybe more passing in the offense. But who was Jamel Holloway before Troy went down in the Miami? Well, he's pretty much an unknown. And yeah. I think that we all, no one knew about Jamel Holloway. It was just, a, you know, this guy that was a freshman, never played college football. As you mentioned, Troy went down against Miami. And so it was just, a, we didn't know what was going to happen. I think that I always kid Troy when I see him. It's like, it's hard to imagine you're a wishbone quarterback. And he goes, man, I was a lot faster than that. But, you know, Jamel, just really sometimes when you don't know any better, when you're green and you're able to run that offense. I mean, granted, we had great running backs, offensive line to execute. But he was such a great downhill runner. But, uh, Dennis, obviously what I really remember about 85 is what we did in 84 to get us back to the Orange Bowl because – uh, we didn't take care of business against Washington. We we embarrassed uh, Coach Switzer, and he was going to make it known that we we're going to take care of business when we went back to this uh, to the Orange Bowl in '85 and played Penn State. And I remember this vividly. We had two a days. So all the people that think that Coach Switzer is this guy that doesn't grind on you, he made it a point where we we're actually going to have two a days during the bowl week. Imagine that. Imagine you, you couldn't even think about that now, obviously, but. Back then, two days, and we we actually got after it. We brought in these cots, catered uh, lunch, and we took a little nap. We actually did that for three days, but uh, he was kind of he's going to get our attention. There wasn't going to be any distractions against Penn State after what happened the following year to uh, to Washington. Amazing, you know, Tony. Back then, you know, you went into a bowl game, and it wasn't predetermined necessarily to be for the national championship, right? You. Um, you know, Miami was also playing Tennessee in the sugar bowl at that time. Mm -hmm. Right. And there was the right. notion that you could have possibly split, split the national championship if the mm -hmm. hurricanes won, uh, <laughs> even though Miami's only loss was to you earlier in the season, were you guys watching that score at all during your game? I imagine it wasn't easy, even easy to follow back then, uh, as <laughs> it is today. Uh, yeah, there was, we wasn't following it on social media, on Twitter or anything like that. <laughs> uh, I think we were doing some scoreboard watching, but we really didn't think about that. 
Um, I think that we just knew that, look, we had to take care of Penn State. It was a very formidable opponent. We knew that they'd be prepared. We knew it was going to be a dogfight, and we, we kind of learned our lesson the following year. So that's really what we were focused on. Now, that thought was probably in the back of our, our minds. We knew going into the game that we had to, be, we, you know, we had to win to give our chance a shot. Um, but it was just one of those things that we knew collectively our defense was just so ferocious, and we knew that it was just going to be one of those games that we're just going to have to play – throughout the game and make big plays and uh, you know, Penn state ran the football. So uh, we take, we need to take care of things on the football field before we're even worried about any t- chance of winning a national championship. I want to go back to the two days real quick. I don't know if I've ever heard that. But <laughs> where, where did you guys practice? Was it a local high school or where did you guys practice? We, uh, it's actually Tropicana stadium. I think it may have been a community college. Dennis. Yeah. And, um, I mean, it's been so long ago that, but uh, you know, it's amazing the things that you remember. I mean, you we have the selective memory, and yeah, I think some as you get older, you forget about some of those things. But that was the thing, the defining moment, because we're just because it was really, we had guys that were just uh, we were partying, having a good time, and and we just took Washington very lightly the year before, and uh, so I, I, yeah, that's what we did. So when we first found out and we got the schedule, we're thinking. We're going to have two days for during bowl week in Miami. Are you coach? Are you serious? Because, yeah. And I remember him vividly in having this team meeting and say, yeah, we're going to go down there. And as I mentioned, we're not, you're not going to embarrass me again. You're not going to embarrass yourselves. You're not going to embarrass uh, you know, Sooner Nation. Like, okay, we get it. So the first day, as I mentioned, it was just so weird because you're not two at eight mode. And maybe it was just, you know, we, we wanted, he wanted to get our attention. Because he wanted us to, he wanted us to go have a good time, but based on what happened the year before, we're not gonna, you're not gonna have like you know, a later curfew. Your curfew is to be in practice in two days and get ready for preparation. And uh, yeah, it was it was crazy to think that we would do that, and then it was just kind of reality set in. And we thought, we look now that we look back on it, I, I don't ever hear Coach Switzer ever talk about that. I mean, he's did some things as a coach, and I'm, I, I admire and some things I scratched my head, but that's the best thing that ever happened uh, for us because it got our attention. It made us focus and get in our lane of what we need to do against Penn State and hopefully won a national championship. You know, you, you mentioned your defense that, that, that season and that game. You won the Lombardi Award that year as the best lineman, but you also had two other All-Americans on your defense, yeah. uh, Leslie O'Neill and Brian Bosworth. Uh, in that game, you guys had four interceptions, five turnovers total. Well, tell tell us what that defense was like and how much confidence you all had that season, especially coming into the Orange Bowl against Penn State. Well, actually, let's say O'Neill played for Oklahoma State, but he was a tremendous player uh-huh. to play. But, uh, but yeah, you know, Brian Bosworth, myself, um, you look at our defensive line, we had Kevin Murphy, we had Troy Johnson, we had Dale Reed. We had so much speed. And I don't think it was just – one of us, I mean, collectively we played really good team defense. We're so fast. And I think we took a lot of pride on playing technique and understanding our role. You know, that type of defense, you're talking about protecting your linebackers, protecting the platoon. That's sort of our whole gratification was to make sure our linebackers could just be freely and run the football. Now, you know, Brian Boswick won't tell you that because it was all about his, his persona and him making plays, but when I go back and I watch what we did as a defensive 
front and collectively our speed. Granted, it was different. Um, you know, we went to defensive mode as far as stopping run. There's no one could get to the edges. We had so much speed and we're so disruptive. And, you know, when people threw against us, yeah, they may have some success, but then ultimately we would adjust. And it was all about what our front seven did to an offense. That's really good. I think there's only two people maybe on this podcast, Tony, that have been in Brian Bosworth's uh, dorm room. Uh, <laughs> I, I distinctly remember one of those years, may have been 85, but when he was breaking out as, you know, this kind of counterculture guy with the dyed hair and everything. Yeah. Did, you know, that's one thing, his public persona. But did you guys, even apart from him going, okay, this guy's a player, or, or did it matter? If you can play, it doesn't matter how you present yourself. Well, I think certainly it did. I think some of the things of what came out of Brian Bosworth's mouth is sooner. I think people uh, really just uh, felt like he had no respect for his teammates and, 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 it, and wasn't really contrite about that. And I think that that's the thing about it is when you're playing your ass off, it's part of my language, when you're playing really, really hard and that's what your, your whole motive is, is to be a great defense and to understand the responsibilities I mentioned uh, you know, take a take pride in what you do and letting them play their position based on your role, then sometimes that comes back and really does it. The perception is that he really is a team player, which is fine. Um, but when you're on the football field, Dennis, you coexist with so many personalities. It doesn't matter. You're out there. You, you have you're you're out there for three hours. You you don't think about those things. You think about the moment. You think about the fans. You think about playing for your coaches. You think about playing for one another. So you don't really have that. That's not something you're in this animosity mode while you're playing, because ultimately, you know, what you do is going to, you're going to have pride. And I think we took pride in being great and to be great. You can't have this outside venom and poison in your, in your head just because you resent another player. So uh, we didn't really think about that. We thought about the common goal and that was being the greatest defense in my eye that ever played at the university of Oklahoma. And you, and you, you may have just been that Tony. <laughs> well, I'm sure you, you know would argue what? that you were. <laughs> well, I look, I, I think that I go back and I look and not that I, I think that the thing that, that when you go back and you look at the history of what's your play and what you've done. And I think you, it's the game's it's changed so much. It's tilted to a different direction. And you know that. Um, but yeah, I think that when you you're out there and you have, you're part of a legacy you're part of a national championship. You're part of something really, really uh, special. You go back and like, well, how did you get there? And obviously our offense is good, but defensively, I mean, you, you look at our statistics and the players we had on the team and uh, we always gave, we, we always, our pride was giving each other, giving ourselves a chance to, to win. And look, that's just part of the, part of the game mode and part of being a football player. And then that's a DNA that will always last forever. Well, here on Bowl Season Stories, we, we try to do just that, Tony. We, there's so many great stories around bowl games, things that happen on the field, but even off the field. Uh, you mentioned the disappointment in that uh, Orange Bowl loss to Washington. A lot of people might not remember this, uh, and you correct me if I'm a little bit off on the facts, but the, the Sooner Schooner may have delivered the turning point in that <laughs> game. Uh, again, correct me. I think the score was tied at 14 early in the fourth quarter. You guys kicked a 22-yard field goal, but were penalized. So you're going to back up five yards. Apparently this sooner schooner was not aware of the penalty. So 
it, it continued to celebrate, rode out to the field, got stuck in the wet, white, uh, the wet grass in front of the, <laughs> the Husky sideline. You were assessed another 15 yards, and then the ensuing 42-yard field goal got blocked. So I'm sure you guys weren't too happy with the schooner at that point. Well, you know, unfortunately, we couldn't really blame it on the schooner. We just didn't play well. But that was kind of like the, the narrative in that game. Stuff just didn't go right. Uh, it, 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 certainly the, the schooner didn't like uh, tip over like it did a couple of years ago I was actually <laughs> at the game. So it wasn't that atrocious, but uh, yeah, that was kind of like a really quirky game. It's kind of just really just the vibe is different. And uh, you know, some of the guys I played with, I played with Kevin Gogan who played on that team and I, he was my teammate in Dallas and he'd always give me a hard time because they'd always trap us and get us upfield and they'd just gouge us for big yards. But, you know what? I mean, if it was something that we could really blame it on, the schooner and, and, and it coming out on the field, that was just kind of – they were kind of sleepwalking, sleepwalking like we did. Maybe they just didn't pay, pay enough attention to detail that week, just like us. And maybe it was just kind of this you kind of you know, trickle through, trickle down and through them. But um, it was – it just felt like it was an uphill battle that day. You know, it was just one of those things that, you, you know, you go in thinking you're a heavy, heavy favorite – and you know this, next thing you know, it, uh, they're on top of you and you have things like that happen. You, you, it takes you out of field position. You're not able to execute. And uh, before you know it, uh, you're upset and not feeling very good about yourself. Tony, what was it like going to the Orange Bowl for the first time? Because there's something to be said for that. And then playing there, it's always hot and muggy and everybody's right on top of you. I don't know if there'll ever be a place like that in, in bowl lore, I guess. It was unique, Dennis. Uh, I think that when I when I followed uh, Oklahoma football, it's all about the oranges. It's all about November when they threw oranges on the field. You knew that uh, it was raining oranges, <laughs> so it's kind of uh, coveted. It was a it was something that was a that, that was just an unusual thing for Oklahoma to play in the Orange Bowl. And I'm thinking, growing up and watching that game, I'm thinking I want to be part of something like that. But uh, there was nothing like the Warrensville. We stayed at the Fountain Blue Hotel. <laughs> and, and, I, and I just didn't know this, but about six or seven years ago, they refurbished it, renovated. It's an amazing place now. It looks nothing like it used to look you know, like, like before. But uh, I want to be at the Fountain Blue Hotel. I want to be down at Miami Vice. I want to be down on South Beach. I want to be part of it. All this you know, dudes from Oklahoma never being on, you know, down to South Beach where it's uh, – a little trendier and a little it's a little different than Norman, Oklahoma, but just want to be part of that whole that whole uh, picture and the whole experience. And to your point too, man, it, that's the thing about it. it, it you mentioned it, it's not like it is now. We get thirty days off to prepare for you know, a bowl game. You're playing at a national championship, and it wasn't really. It's more the unofficial one, as we you alluded to earlier, as far as the rankings how it could work out, but. The problem was is that you there was enough time in there to get out of shape. And, you know, us defensive linemen, offensive linemen, you're out on the field, all of a sudden it's like, wow, I'm gassed. Uh, but so it's something you never really get acclimated to. Uh, I think the, the answer to that is just not being on the field that long. But there was something about being on South Beach, staying at the Fountain Blue Hotel, and actually winning that game afterwards because you knew the afterward party was going to be great. Being a, and, and I was like, I was watching Scarface. Some of you guys have watched Scarface before, but there's a scene about the Fountain Blue Hotel. And I'm like, yeah, I was there. In the fact that I was able to meet Fabio before Fabio became this great Fabio with the, with the great hair. 
first time I ever met Fabio down on Fountain Blue at the Orange Bowl was uh, was him and with the supermodel girlfriend. And I thought that was cool. Little did I know 10 or 15 years later, or however long it was, he's going to bring this household name, have this long hair and be the Fabio that we do. So uh, that's kind of a backdrop to that and a little footnote of what the experience I had in the Orange Bowl. Can you imagine Fabio today with social media? <laughs> oh my gosh. How many, he would probably hundred million followers. I, mean, <laughs> I can only imagine what, how he would just uh, utilize that brand. <laughs> Tony, one last question for you. You mentioned coach Switzer a couple times, you know, and I think um, any college football fan knows about coach Switzer. They envision him as this colorful personality, uh, but you played for him. You know him well, what was it like to play? for coach Switzer? Well, I think I really, the answer to that question, I really didn't really find out until once I got out of football until once I'd left the game and how close of friends we are now and how I, this man is, is, is your life, your lifeline, your, your call that you would make. All right. And I really didn't realize and appreciate that because I think a lot of coaches, I don't know, maybe coaches are different. I don't know if they stick, keep that, that connection and that relationship going until you get out of football, you know, until it, while you're there, obviously you have a relationship, but he's, we're, we're talking 30 years later, 25 years later, he stays connected. But for me, he's that unconditional guy. He'll do anything for you. You call him up, remembers, had a chance to go and, and, and spend time with him. And he remembers everything, remembers every stat, remembers every player, every player recruited. And this man's 84 years old. But he remembers that vividly. And maybe that's just something that the gift of a, a great head coach or head coach has. Um, but it, it, that's something that it, it's hard to find. And, and how connected he says. And I, I will, I, my last uh, uh, you know, comment on that will be, so last year during the Super Bowl, uh, he called me up and he said, hey, Tony, he says, uh, how, many, how many Super Bowl rings you win? I said, got two. And he goes, well, they didn't mention you. They were doing some article and they didn't mention me. I'm not very mad. I said, oh, it's okay, coach. It's all right. The game was that night. And so I said, well, I got you on the phone. Let me ask you this. You won a Super Bowl, the Cowboys, the last one, the Cowboys have won, unfortunately. It's been a long time. And you won five, you know, how many national championships you won? Which one did you, which experience did you, did, did you met the most? He goes, well, Tony, I tell you what, this one in the Super Bowl, there's all those guys in that roster I didn't I didn't know. There's guys that you know went through free agency I didn't know. But when I was a college coach, I remember everyone. I knew their moms, I knew their sisters, I knew where we went to high school, I knew every what their favorite food was, what their favorite alcoholic beverage with their their data. And he said, that's what I remember, and that's my experience. And so to your point about that, that's the relationship you have with a coach Switzer. You got a friend forever. So um you know, they, you know, they, they, they broke the mold when it, whenever they, they made that dude, man. And just to be able to be around him and talk to him and the stories and everything, best storyteller you'll ever, ever, uh, you hear just this whole experience and his genuine and his passion and everything. It's just amazing. So, uh, he's by far one of the, the, the biggest impact that I've, this, anyone's ever made in my life. And Tony, talk, I talked to him last week for uh, the Nebraska-Oklahoma game. And 84, you mentioned sharp as a tack. I, I hope we're all that way when we're 84. He <laughs> he was telling details and stories from Oklahoma-Nebraska games that I, I, had me laughing out loud. It was unbelievable. So 
Yeah, we'll never forget Coach Switzer. Yeah, he's a legacy to live forever. And and yeah, you know, when you the thing about him, Dennis, with, with Coach Switzer, like you're not supposed to get old because he doesn't he doesn't age. I mean, you're seeing people, but his mind is so sharp. And again, it's just uh, it's amazing the memories and the things that you you go through the coach and thirty years later you have a stronger relationship. I don't think a lot of former players can say that about their former head coaches. Well, there's no doubt we could, we could talk all day about this stuff. This has been a fun conversation for me. Thank you both so much for being on the show, Dennis. Uh, I know you and I will talk again soon as the season unfolds. Uh, and Tony, it was, a, it was a privilege visiting with you. Thank you so much for spending time. Hey, you guys, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. We're going to take a short break and be right back with the Fiesta Bowl and Guaranteed Rate Bowl Executive Director, Mike Neely. Stay with us. Thanks for listening to the Bowl Season Stories podcast, a celebration of college football that breaks down the moments, the memories, and the magic of college football. Be sure to check out Mike Drop, another podcast powered by Tony Fay PR. Mike Drop pulls back the curtain on the larger-than-life sports scene here in North Texas, from its iconic teams, state-of-the-art venues, and headline-grabbing owners and athletes, we cover it all. Download Mic Drop today. Welcome back to Bowl Season Stories. Our next guest is Mike Neely, Executive Director of the Arizona Sports Foundation and the Valley of the Sun Bowl Foundation, the organizations that put on the PlayStation Fiesta Bowl and the Guaranteed Rate Bowl. Welcome, welcome, Mike. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. My pleasure. My pleasure. Mike, last year was the 50th anniversary of the Fiesta Bowl, hard to believe. And over those years, your bowls become known for some really unique partnerships, uh, as well as the many philanthropic initiatives that have benefited the greater Phoenix community. So let, let's talk about those. Uh, I'll start with your recently announced uh, first of its kind sports betting and fantasy gaming partnership for a bowl game with Caesars. Uh, the partnership will focus on fan engagement and expanding sports gaming and education in Arizona. With sports betting going live in the state in just a few weeks, what's your vision of this type of partnership and, and what are your long-term goals with this move? Yeah, how about that? I mean, how many years ago would, would somebody have thought that, uh, you know, gaming and or sports betting would have been, would have really been a, uh, an opportunity in the collegiate uh, world? And, you know, for, for us, we're very excited about that opportunity. Of course, Caesars and through some of our, our local uh, gaming, you know, they, they've had some in, involvement in the uh, uh, in the valley here, but uh, you know, once the betting became, uh, we knew it was it was coming down the path, and the interest was going to be high. You know, we started searching for partners, and uh, ultimately with uh, Caesar, just a, a great partner to have. Um, really, the as far as a long term thing, I, I think I think as far as long term for, for in bowl business and sports, it, it's it's here and it's going to grow, and more states are going to probably embrace uh, the sports betting. Arizona was uh, early on that, and we jumped on that early and. With our relationship with them, it's it's really a, you know a partnership in that you know we're we're using that as an opportunity to uh, in, enhance our abilities to do what we do as a business and and give back to the community, but also obviously as a partnership with them, getting uh, the, the growth of, of their business. That's that's really what the partnership is about. You know we're, we don't have a licensee uh, relationship here, but uh, you know what we are using and working with them uh, on a, just a good partnership, and we're going to grow each other. You know, moving over to your philanthropic efforts a little bit, you know, you have a, it seems like the Fiesta Bowl is really, really locked in uh, with helping teachers. Um, you've had your Desert Financial Fiesta Bowl Charities Wishes for Teachers program for 
uh, for a long time has had tremendous impact in the Valley. Uh, you've also been a longtime partner with the Extra Yard for Teachers. Yeah. Now, bowl season just forged a new partnership with Extra Yard for Teachers, getting all 44 bowl games involved for the first time in the big day last week. What is it about the teaching profession that makes it a perfect fit to, for the Fiesta Bowl and, and in turn all the bowl games? Yeah, it, it was great to, to have that uh, partnership and that all the bowls uh, step forward. It was nice for Extra Yard for Teachers that, that, you know, to partner up and, and facilitate this. I mean, it's kind of a no-brainer, really. For you know, at the ultimately, at the end of the day, you know, we're we're still involved with education and, and student athletes here. So, uh, and and I think everybody knows that that the need for teachers, the uh, the need that teachers have is is so great across the whole country and, and and for sure in Arizona. So, some years back when we got involved with our Witches for Teachers program, we started always we we knew and we wanted to do something for teachers. And that just grew tremendously, you know, both as, as an opportunity for us to bring other partners into it, as you mentioned, Desert Financial. So there, there's a business piece to that, but the need is just, it, it's, it's there. And for us to be able to uh, raise funds and then give back, you know, we're a million dollars a year to teachers um, really on a, on a random drawing basis. It, it's just awesome to be able to do that because we know the needs there, the importance of teachers in all of our lives, you know, the difference that they make you know, at young ages for, for, you know, for all of us know teachers that, that made an impact you know, and, and usually very strong and good impacts. And so for us to be able to support that critical and it was it kind of a no brainer and it's, it's worked out so well. And it, it's great that Extra Yard as well, we, we partner with them in, in parallel. Well, there's, there's no doubt while all 44 bowl games have been involved, uh, the Fiesta Bowl has really, really been a leader uh, in that way for, for many, many years. So uh, congratulations on that, Mike. Tell, tell me how important uh, the Fiesta Bowl and Guaranteed Rate Bowl uh, are to the local community on, on, on every level, right? Economic, philanthropic, the image, the pride, the tradition, the competition. Yeah. How, do you, how do you wrap all those touch points together to connect with the entire community? Yeah, sure. I mean, for those that are that are going to listen to this and that are involved in any other bowls, I'm sure the heads are going to nod that it's kind of a, a known thing that having these games in a community you know, brings light to the community, first of all, but that economic impact is so important. And, you know, 50 years ago when we started, uh, you know, it, that was a big piece of that is, you know, what we could, what we could do to shed light on the community uh, and do some good. I mean, earlier on, uh, I think it was an anti-drug message, even back in, in those first years. And so um, using the, the bowl for those types of reasons, but a lot of it is just the impact on the community, both in a sense of pride, and there's a huge amount of pride in, you know, with our bowl game, and I'm sure in, in all the other bowl games, but you know, when you're talking, you know, 5,000 plus hotel rooms and, you know, the economic impact side of this, um, it's very important to the community. And, you know, it, it's when we have, you know, we have two of our games, you know, we have two big matchups, you know, we're, we're talking, you know, a couple hundred million dollars of impact to the community. And over the years, obviously that adds up. And you're, if you're when you're talking about billions of dollars of, of impact over the time, that makes up, that does make a big impact for communities. So that's, that's very important a sense of pride for the community and it's college football, you know? So it, it's, uh, it's, it's just great to be able to be a part of it. Well, I think a lot of people don't understand that aspect, Mike, you know, the average fan might turn the TV on in December and watch your game for three hours and not yeah. realize the, the, you know, not just economic, you know, uh, reasons why these games are so important to the community, but just the sense of pride, like the people who live in your area are proud to have, two teams from other parts of the country come and play in your community so they can show it off 
Um, Absolutely. We, we have people lined up to be volunteers. I mean, it, it takes, it takes a village really to put these on and, you know, you always laugh, you know, people always ask me, is that a full-time job? What do you do all year? You have this game, you know, what, what possibly, you know, it, it, it takes a village and we rely on, on thousands of, of uh, volunteers ultimately as well. And we are so blessed with our yellow jackets and our volunteers. And, and that, that speaks to the community wanting to be a part of this. And, and they line up to be a part of it. And it is, it's, it's a big sense of pride and it's, it's awesome to be a part of it. Since you started uh, your job there, Mike, do you have a favorite bowl game moment? Maybe it's not even a moment on the field. Maybe it's a moment during bowl week with the teams that sticks out in your mind. Yeah. I kind of figured you were going to ask that question. And I, and I thought about it a little bit, you know, and I, this is going to maybe, a, a, you know, I got a couple answers for you. Maybe on, on a personal side, I'll share for me, you know, not, not to get sappy in this, but I, you know, I lost my dad about a little over a year ago, whatever, but I was able to, you know, he was a big football fan, you know, in college football and mental that I was able to, to get him to a game and have some access to, to some things that most people don't have access to. And I, and I think that, um, you know, and he was probably very proud of, of, of what I was doing. And so, so that, that meant a lot to me from a personal standpoint, but for me on an annual basis, I love being on that stage after the game and you're looking out at these players and you realize what it means. You know, I'm not, I don't see one team can win, but when you're looking out on those players' faces and the joy and how, how happy that, you know, you know, all the trials and tribulations they went through, the, you know, not only that game, but the whole season, when, when you're looking out there and you see how happy these guys are and it makes you think of, you know, all the work that goes into it, all with the staff and the volunteers and everything that comes together. And then you're looking at them in their eyes and they're so excited. That's what I remember and look forward to every year for sure. And, and it really makes you realize how meaningful these bowl games are to these yes, guys. Yeah. And, and it's the same thing across all 44 bowl games. It's that same feeling that every executive director yep. gets at the end of the games. Yep. Yeah. Don't, don't let somebody tell you that it doesn't mean something. And I don't care what game it is, you know, some games maybe on, on paper mean a little bit more than some other ones, but for those players that played in that game and, and had that up, that opportunity and, and the experience that they did in that community. And then for those lucky ones that be able to win that game, it means a lot for sure. Yeah. The last question for you, Mike, we made it through a tough year with COVID. Uh, we're, we're, you know, for the most part through it, uh, we're on our way back. We're look, what are you looking forward to the most for this 2021, 22 bowl season? Yeah, that's a softball question there, Nick, uh, you know, <laughs> Fans in the stands, really. We, you know, we yeah. went. One of our games went dark uh, last year, and then the other one, we could, we only were allowed to have uh, parents of players. So, boy, just getting back to the normalcy and, and actually having fans to be able, because you know, besides the uh, talking about the players and the enjoyments they have in that, when you're out there and you're walking pregame and you're, you know, you're just even sometimes walking through the stadium, there's a lot of joy in the fans. You know, this is again, it's college football, and just having those that opportunity for the people to come into the game cheer for their team. That's what I'm looking forward to. The guaranteed rate bowl is scheduled for Tuesday, December 28th at 10 15 PM Eastern time at chase field in Phoenix, Arizona. And the PlayStation Fiesta bowl is scheduled for Saturday, January 1st at 1 PM Eastern time at state farm stadium in Glendale, Arizona. Both games will be broadcast on ESPN. Mike, thanks so much for being on the show. We appreciate it. Great. No problem. Great to see you guys. Take care. And thank you all for listening to this week's Bowl Season Stories podcast. Please join us next week when we will welcome another lineup of great guests. If you like the show, we'd appreciate you dropping a five-star rating for the podcast. And as always, you can follow all the podcast and Bowl Season news on our website, bowlseason.com, and on social media at Bowl Season. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.